Heavenly Father, you are the one. You are the one true God. And Father, we know that you are one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As Moses wrote, Hear, O Israel, hear our Lord. The Lord is one. Father, we're here to praise you. We've lifted up our voices. Father, we give through our offerings at the end of the service. Father, we fellowship with one another. Lord, we hear your word. Father, I pray that we put aside our, our distractions. We put aside our worries, our concerns. And Father, as we look into your word this morning, as we look into Acts 2, Father, we learn what it means to be a church, what it means to follow Christ as a body, as his body, as his flock. Lord, we know he is the head of the church. He is the great shepherd. Father, help us to understand all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles to Acts 2. Now, in your bulletins, it says we were looking at Acts 2, um, 42 to 47, but as I was working on the sermon this week, it's much bigger than that. And so we're actually going to look more at the whole chapter, the second chapter of Acts. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we are going to look at different verses from that chapter. As I worked on the sermon, as I studied, and as I prepared, it became very apparent to me um, that we have to look at entire context. And that should be no surprise to everyone. We, we do look at context when we read Scripture. So I wanted to take it back to the beginning in Acts 2 and take a look at that. We recently talked about church membership, and today we're holding a membership class. And it's going to be right after church at 11.30 a.m. across the way in the Christian Ed building in the conference room over there. And we ask people to sign up for it. Um, if you haven't signed up, it's okay. You're still welcome to come. And I hope you do. You don't have to sign up ahead of time. We just wanted to make sure we had enough um, membership packets for people to take a look at. And you don't have to be pursuing membership to come to the class. If you're just curious about what Grace Bible Church teaches, if you want to know more about us, if you want to just hear more of the word, please come to the class. We're not going to pressure you and give you a, a high-pressure sales talk to join the church or anything like that. The word speaks for itself. But I would invite any of you who want to come, and even if you're members and you want to come to hear a refresher on it or to hear more on doctrine that maybe you have a question about, please come over and, and join us. We'll start at 11.30, have time to run out, grab a lunch, bring your lunch, um, and you can eat it while we have the class. It's very informal. This morning, I want to share a little bit about the church. Now, not about Grace Bible Church in particular, but about the local church in general. And there's a lot we can look at, a lot of questions we can ask. For example, what is the church? Who is in the church? How does one join the church? What does it mean to be a church member? What is my role in the church? How is the church governed? And a question like, I've heard of church discipline, but what is it? Now, each of these can be a sermon or a lesson in and of itself, and there's, there's no time to go into all of those or answer all those questions today. And I'm not going to try to tackle all of those, so you can rest assured we'll be done in time for the membership class. But today, I want to examine what the local church is. And to do that, let's consider the first church, the one in Jerusalem following the day of Pentecost. Now, Jesus first 
spoke of establishing his church in Matthew 16, 18. And listen as I read that to you. It's the very first time Jesus talked about his church. And it's interesting what he said about it. And I'll I'll start up, actually I'm going to start at verse 13. Now when Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The disciples did not stop and question Jesus about what he meant when he said he would build his church. So the concept of church must have been familiar to the disciples, even if not the same for the assembly or congregation of God's people in the Old Testament. Israel was the assembly of God. They didn't use the word church, but the concept is still there. It means called out ones, people that are chosen, called out by God. The word for church is mentioned over 100 times in the New Testament. And only three of those are in the gospel. The rest are in the epistles and the revelation. And what we know about the church, we learn mostly from Acts and from the epistles, the letters that were written by Paul and Peter and and John and the writer of Hebrews. Today we talk about the early church, the first century church. We talk about church fathers. And consider the various denominations that have arisen over the centuries. Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians and Anglicans, Methodists, Roman Catholics, And each of these has its own traditions, its own rituals, its own way of doing things. There are the sacraments and the ordinances, the Lord's Supper, baptism. There are liturgies. And it's easy to be confused. Who's doing it right? And how do we know? What is the example of a church? Well, to get those questions answered... We look to the one true source. We look at God's word. So let's look at this first church. The Jerusalem church in Acts 2. So the first part of this I want to call the first church. Who were they? Who were they in the first church? I'll give you a little background from Acts 2, 1 through 36. Then we'll go back and pick some of this up. Peter is preaching to the people who saw what was happening on the day of Pentecost. Now you recall what happened. The, the believers had gathered together. And we know from Acts 1.15 that there were about 120 of them at the time. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And some of them began to speak in tongues. Now there were Jews from all over the world 
who were there in Jerusalem at the time. And they heard the believers speaking in their own languages. And they were amazed because the people doing the talking were all Galileans. They were all from one region. But yet they were talking in these languages, all these different languages. They weren't from all over the world, just from this one place. Now, some mocked them and said that it was because they were drunk. But Peter addresses the crowd and he tells them about Jesus. He says, they're not drunk, they're prophesying. And he tells the crowd that Jesus, whom they crucified, was not dead, but was alive. And he gave them the gospel. He explained that what they were seeing was the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. And so we pick up the narrative in Acts 2.37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So how did over 3,000 people from different nations all come together? What did they have in common? This is a question for the church today. Here in Hollister, we have diversity. Look around our congregation. We have Latinos, African-Americans, Asians, people from Western Europe. We have some who are highly educated, and we have some who never completed high school. We have young and old. We have married and unmarried, male and female, some with large incomes, some who are unemployed. What is it then that brings us all together? We're here together for the same reason the first church was together. We were drawn by the gospel. In the first part of Acts 2, we read that Peter gave the gospel to the crowd. He told them about Jesus' life. Listen to Acts 2.22. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter was giving his testimony. I saw this. We are witnesses that Jesus is alive. And he told them about Jesus' resurrection. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing All too often, we try to use logic to prove Jesus' life and and death. We use science. We use all kinds of things that Paul would call plausible words of wisdom, logic. 
Peter goes to scripture to support what he says. He doesn't rely on just logic. He lets scripture do the talking. The gospel is powerful, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. So he has declared himself a witness. When we give our testimonies, we are witnesses to Christ. When we share the gospel, we should not overlook giving our testimonies to share what Christ has done for us. And we, like those before us, are the elect of God. Pastor Ron has preached this very thing from Ephesians 1.11. And we know that no one comes to Jesus except they are drawn by the Father. Jesus said so in John 6.44. And Peter has said the same thing. When he says, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We are together in the same way the first church was together. When the people asked what they should do, Peter told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You can only be saved if you have repented of your sins, trusting in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Peter says in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way to God. But we know that our faith is a gift from God. Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us there is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. We have no righteousness in and of ourselves. And Paul writes that we wouldn't even seek God. We wouldn't care to seek God. We are so far distant from him. We are so depraved in our sin. We are so blinded by the enemy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is God's gift to us. And see, even our repentance is a gift from God. Acts eleven eighteen and and Second Timothy two twenty five confirm this that God grants repentance. Even our turning from sin is not our own work. We have no reason to boast. So this means that, like the first church, all of us here are on equal footing. All of us here are sinners. All of us here had no righteousness inside them. All of us here would not seek God were it not for God calling us, drawing us by the gospel. No one here has earned salvation. There's no one here rich enough to pay for it. There is no one here so special or from the right political party or from the right color or of the greater education or of greater need for salvation that he could merit it beyond anyone else. Look around this room. We are all the same before God. The church is the one and the only place where there is true equality. We look about us and they talk about equal rights. They talk about diversity. They talk about discrimination. True equality comes from a right understanding that we are all sinners 
We all need a savior. And we are here only because of Jesus Christ, not because of us. We are all equal. Eric read this morning from Ephesians 3, 6. He said, the Jews and Gentiles alike are partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. This was the mystery of God, that the Gentiles could be saved. That we would all be together. In the first church, those who belonged to Christ were baptized. Today, we follow the Lord's command in Matthew 28, 19, to be baptized. I'm not going to preach today on baptism. I will be preaching on it in a few weeks. But today, I'm only going to say that baptism is both a command of Christ and a depiction of our union with him. But there's so much more to baptism than that. And I urge you to come here when I preach about it and see how beautiful baptism is and what it means for us individually and what it means for us as a church. Like those in the first church, we are given the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, he writes, although we don't know what to pray for as we ought, it is the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And you'll recall he wrote in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. If you have truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have the Holy Spirit. Each of us then, who are members of Grace Bible Church, like those in the first church, are chosen of God, are called by Christ, are drawn by the gospel, and given the Holy Spirit by whom we are sealed and have publicly declared our union with him through obedience and baptism, just like the first church. Christ promised that no one would snatch us from his hand or from the Father's hand. Listen to what he says in John 10, 28 through 30. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We are held in the Father's hand. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and no one can take our salvation away from us. Who were the people of the first church? They were like us. And like them, our bond with Christ is strong. So then I want to look to the first church for what were they known? For what was the first church known? Their bond with Christ was strong. And so were their bonds with each other. Let's look at Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now notice in verse 42 that the members of the first church were devoted to four things. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. These four things form strong bonds among the members of the early church. So let's look at each of them. The first one is the apostles' teaching. Teaching was a primary concern of the apostles. When the church grew too large for them to oversee every detail, they appointed table servers. These were the prototype deacons to ensure that all were being fed. You recall the the account from Acts 6. We read in Acts 6, 4, that the apostles said they would devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They were teaching what Jesus commanded. It was a primary concern to them to teach. Part of the great commission in Matthew 28 is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And the apostles were teaching from the Old Testament. The New Testament had not yet been written. But it was being written as they taught. They were teaching the word of God. And this is evident in what Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The apostles and prophets were not the foundation, but rather they laid the foundation. It's based on what they taught. It's based on the doctrine that they explained, that they had learned at the feet of Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 tells us, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent for every good work. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, despite what is taught by the Roman Catholic Church, Jesus was not declaring that he would build his church on Peter himself. He was not making Peter the first pope. Rather, Jesus was referring to the apostles of whom Peter was a representative, and more particularly their doctrine, which Peter had just declared in saying that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. You recall what we just read in Matthew Upon this rock I will build my church. It is this declaration, this teaching against which the gates of hell will not prevail. 
The teaching of the apostles then was a strong bond among the believers of the early church. And today we have the same teaching. We have the New Testament and we have the Old Testament. This is why we place such importance on the Bible as our final authority here at Grace Bible Church. And this is why we ask you, please read your Bibles regularly. Read your Bibles daily. In doing so, you strengthen your bond with one another. In this manner, you all speak the same truth. In this manner, you encourage and build up one another. This is why we ask you not to take our word for it when we preach or when we teach, but rather to check what we say against Scripture. This teaching that we have in common is a strong bond in Christ's church. Now, the members of the early church also devoted themselves to fellowship. This was a unique fellowship. It's a very unique relationship. It's marked by a love and concern for one another. Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Paul wrote extensively on how we were to love one another. Listen to the list. With brotherly affection, outdoing one another in showing honor. By living in harmony with one another. We are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed each of us. We are to instruct one another. We are to greet one another with a holy kiss, signifying warm affection. We are to serve one another, bear with one another, speak the truth with one another, be kind to one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, count others more significant than ourselves, admonish one another in all wisdom. As a side note, you can't do that if you don't read the word. Encourage one another and build one another up. Exhort one another. Show hospitality to one another. Be humble toward one another. Now I have verses for all of those. And if you, if you want a list of all the verses I use today, and especially that section, just drop me an email. You can find my email on the church website. I'll be glad to send you the scripture references to all of these. Verse 44 tells us they had all things in common. And verse 45 tells us they sold their possessions and their belongings and they distributed what they had among others as they had need. Now, this was not a communist society. They weren't required to sell anything. And in fact, you recall that Ananias and Sapphira sold things and then they lied about how much money they received. But Peter said, hey, it was yours. The sin for them was lying. It wasn't that they, they didn't turn everything over or that they didn't sell everything. Today, we do the same thing. We call it benevolence. And we have a special fund that is set aside to help members in need. And this benevolence fund is not something that comes out of the general fund. We contribute directly to, to the benevolence fund as a fund for itself. In the same manner that members of the first church contributed to the needs of others, we contribute. Verse 46 tells us that day by day they attended the temple together. And they broke bread in their homes 
receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. You cannot be in fellowship with one another if you don't, well, fellowship with one another. We're all here together on Sunday. But how important do we consider that? Where once people considered it important to attend church every Sunday, today all too many people don't see it that way. Sadly, it's no longer a priority. We let sports, we let entertainment, sometimes laziness dictate whether or not we will go to church on any given Sunday. Now, I'm not saying we must be here whenever the doors are open. Because there are times for vacation. There are times for rest. There are times for travel. There's time for illness. And there's time for those that have to work. But do you make church attendance a priority in your life? The author of Hebrews admonished his readers to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I ask you, how do you stir up love and encourage one another if you're not there? How are you encouraged if you don't meet with others? The members of the first church broke bread in their homes, receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Do you attend a small group during the week? Or do you content yourself merely with coming to church on Sunday, considering the hour and a half here is sufficient fellowship? How do you love one another as we are all commanded to do? You cannot love others unless you're involved in their lives. This extends beyond just Sundays. The first church was involved with each other. They shared what they had with each other. They went to temple together. They celebrated the Lord's Supper together. They ate together. They did so gladly and with generous hearts. And together they praised God. True fellowship is not limited to just those like us in church. All too often, God's people gather together based on perceived similarities. Now, meeting each other in similar life situations is not wrong. We need to minister to one another, addressing their needs. But we must be careful we don't form cliques or limit our fellowship only to those in similar circumstances. Otherwise, how are we to teach others? How do older women train younger women in accordance with Titus 2? Sadly, this preference for some believers over others crept in and led to complaints in the early church. We read about this in Acts 6, where the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. The church had grown so much that some had slipped through the cracks, although the Hellenists believed that this was done on purpose. Brothers and sisters today, let us not draw artificial lines like so many others do. Let us have all things in common as did the first century believers. And as we pray that God grows his church here in Hollister, let us not neglect others. Let Hollister know that we are Christians by our love for one another. You see, fellowship is a strong bond in the church. The members of the first church broke bread together. And this probably refers 
to the observing of the Lord's Supper. The first church observed Jesus' commandments to remember him through the partaking of the bread and the cup. And they did this together. It was not just happenstance if they happened to be there. They were devoted to observance of the Lord's Supper. It's one of the four things they were devoted to. And as with baptism, I'm not going to delve into the meaning of the Lord's Supper here. I'm going to preach on that also in a couple of weeks and the beautiful significance of the Lord's Supper. But I do want to share one aspect now with you. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul chided the Corinthians church because of the way they observed the Lord's Supper. He wrote that there were factions. Some ate earlier than others. Some were filled and even drunk while others went hungry. There was unconfessed and even tolerated sin in the congregation. Paul called for them to examine themselves so that they did not partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and therefore bring judgment on themselves. And this includes resolving any conflicts or bitterness and restoring any relationships in which there is division. It includes repenting and seeking forgiveness for any unconfessed sin. The celebration of the Lord's Supper is a time of gathering together in unity, remembering the reason we are together. The death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and anticipating his return. Only Christians experience the true significance of the Lord's Supper. And we gather at the table to honor not ourselves, but to honor Jesus. Rightly celebrating the Lord's Supper with one another is a strong bond in Christ's church. The members of the first church devoted themselves to the prayers. The first church was a praying church. In Acts 1.14, we read that they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts 1.24, we read that the apostles prayed before casting lots to see who would replace Judas Iscariot as the 12th apostle. In Acts 4, they prayed for boldness. In Acts 6, the apostles declared their devotion to prayer. In Acts 9, Peter prayed before raising Tabitha from the dead. In Acts 10, Peter was praying when he received a vision that was later interpreted to mean that he should go to the Gentiles with the gospel. In Acts 12, the church prayed for Peter when he was imprisoned by Herod. In fact, when the angel freed him from prison, Peter went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, where people were praying. The church prayed individually and prayed corporately. In Luke 18:1, Jesus taught that we are to always pray and not lose heart. Paul wrote that we are to be constant in prayer and to, be, and to continue steadfastly in prayer. In Philippians 4, 6, he writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Prayer directly to the Father is the privilege of believers. It is said that God does not heed the prayers 
of unbelievers. There are numerous scriptures that support that statement. I'm not going to go into them all here, but as I was studying and learning, it's amazing how many scriptures where God says, I won't listen. I won't heed their prayers. I won't answer their prayers, either because of their sin or because of their turning away from him or not heeding the gospel. There's all kinds of reasons. But we know that God answers the prayers of believers. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. We are to pray for others. In Matthew 5, Jesus told us to pray for our enemies. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, Paul tells us to pray for our leaders. In James 5, 16, James tells us to pray for one another. Now, may I share an observation with you when it comes to prayer? Have you ever noticed that when you pray for someone, and I mean really pray for someone, you can't help but take an interest in their welfare. And when you're really praying for someone to come to know Christ, you're praying for someone to be healed, you're praying for some, some struggle that they're facing, some trial that they're undergoing, that they'd be relieved of that, that Christ be magnified in that. Do you ever notice that, that you take an interest in that? You take an interest in how they're doing and what's happening. If you don't believe me, try it sometime. Pray for someone and then see if you don't take an interest in their welfare. See, praying with and for one another is a strong bond in Christ's church. So finally, the, the third point is, what was the result? What was the result? See, this was at a time and place not terribly different from our own. The church was under persecution by local authorities. The country was run by a pagan government that merely tolerated their faith. And only when it didn't bump up against their purposes and concerns. And we know that later on, the members of the church were martyred for following Christ. But look at what was going on around them. Look at verse 33. I'm sorry, verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. There was awe going on in the community. They were looking at miracles. And then verse 47 tells us they were having favor with all the people. There is something to be said about the unity, the joy, the love, and indeed the spiritual character of a healthy church. There is an attractiveness in the life changing gospel as it's lived out by the brethren. The last line of verse 47 reads, and the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. See, the life we lead is a testimony about Christ to those around us. The bonds that we have in Christ show forth to the community. 
And that's what Eric read in Ephesians. It's a testimony to those around us, to the rulers and the authorities. So many times in the past, I said that God is bringing a mission field to us. You've heard me say that a number of times. And I can't emphasize that enough. There are some 4,000 or more homes going to be built in and around Hollister in the next several years. I thought it was originally 1,500. Closer to 4,000 and maybe even more. We have an awesome opportunity to show Christ's love to those around us. And we do so by showing Christ's love to those among us. We do so by demonstrating the strong bonds of Christ's church. The bond that we all have together because of Jesus Christ. Now this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I urge you to come talk to Pastor Steve or, or talk to me. We would love to share more of the gospel with you. We would love to hear you confess Christ as your Savior and to know the bonds of unity, to know the forgiveness of sin, the freedom from sin, the freedom from guilt, the freedom from death. This is what Jesus promises as our Lord and Savior. So please don't pass up another opportunity. And for members of the church, let everyone know that we are Christians because we love one another. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are here because of you, because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your gift of repentance, of faith, of salvation. Father, this is not a work on our own. Father, we don't earn this. We don't merit it. We don't pay for it. It's not owed to us. There is nothing special about any one of us here. It is merely because of you. It is because of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for all assembled here that we devote ourselves as did the first church. Father, to your teaching. Father, to fellowship. Fellowship to, Father, to observing the Lord's Supper. And Father, to prayer. Father, I pray that you strengthen this congregation. And Father, may the witness of Jesus Christ go forth. And we pray that you call, that you draw, that you cause others to come to you. To come to salvation. Father, let this be a goal and a desire and a prayer for each of us. And all this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.